Last week was All Saints Sunday, and it was a, 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 for the first time in a while that it was actually All Saints Day. So we had a little break in the course of the readings that uh, we've been reading from Mark's Gospel, from the Letter to the Hebrews, and we began a two-week reading from Ruth. But it afforded, last Sunday, afforded the opportunity to say some things about sanctity, about how we understand the pursuit of sanctity. Most of us often think about it in terms far too heroic. And so we forget that the pursuit of sanctity has something to do with the way in which you and I meet the challenges and the opportunities that are quotidian, that come to us on a daily basis. And maybe in the reading from the book of Ruth and from the gospel, we have some idea today about uh, approaches to sanctity on the part of some of the people that are in these stories. So uh, think about sanctity and its pursuit as we talk about all of this. Um, I've been a priest for a while and I've done a, a, a lot of weddings. And every couple of years, you hear from a couple, they'll be sitting there, we'll go through the liturgy, and one of them will say, Oh, I want you to read at our marriage that wonderful passage from the book of Ruth. Whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will... And I say, well, you know, we can read it, but in the reading... Ruth is speaking to Naomi and not to Boaz. <laughs> I actually had one bride say to me, Oh, they won't know that. <laughs> and you know, I hate to tell you this, but she was right. And it makes you as a pastor feel like an absolute failure. You know? One of the best sermons I ever heard was when I was in seminary, and the preacher said, sentimentality is almost always characterized by a low threshold of pain. You may wonder what I just meant. Think about it. And that is often true with the whole idea of reading from things that don't have anything to do with what you're doing. You know, but if it feels good. So let me say some biblically scholarly shippy things to you about the book of Ruth. It's not a piece of fluff. It's a very important uh, part of the Hebrew Bible. And it has been over-sentimentalized. And it has been often mishandled. And Hollywood certainly has something to do with that because that comes up from time to time, or certainly did in the 1950s when I went to the movies with my mom. There was stuff like that all the time in the movies from Bible stories. There's some um, dispute in biblical scholarship about the dating of this book. Who cares? Well, the reason for writing the book may have been influenced by when it was written. My own personal view is I don't care when it was written and all of the themes 
that, depending on when it was written, are good themes, and why not use them all anyway? Right? So here are some of the themes. In other words, what's the argument? The argument is, was this written before the Babylonian exile? Or was it written after the Babylonian exile? And if it was, what does it say about King David, the great king of Israel? What does it say about the issue of levirate marriage, which I'll explain in a moment? And what does it say to us about how we understand God's inclusive reach, even in the time of the writing of the book of Ruth, to affirm some things about God's plan for the cosmos? One of the things about the book of Ruth is that it's located right after the book of Judges, and it says something in it about the book of, of, of the time of the judges and not the monarchy. And so it's fairly early in the Old Testament. But it could have been written much later. Let's say, what are you talking about? From uh, 1000 BC to 600. Depends. Okay? Now, a word about levirate marriage. This is an affirmation of its importance, slightly nuanced, and it would depend on when it was written. But levirate marriage is this. If uh, a group of brothers live together, these extended families, and one of the brothers dies and leaves a widow, the brother, a brother is obligated to marry the widow, to have children by her, and the firstborn then bears the name of the deceased brother and continues the line. Don't ask me any questions about whether the woman was consulted about this, please. We're talking about, you know, a long time ago now. But I thought I'd look up, since this has something to do with a rule that came from the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 25, here's what it says, just so you know. When brothers reside together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall be married, not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, taking her in marriage and performing the duty of a husband's brother to her, and the firstborn whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the deceased brother so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man has no desire to marry his brother's widow, then his brother's widow shall go up to the elders at the gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and speak to him. If he persists, saying, I have no desire to marry her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, and declare, this is what is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Throughout Israel, his family shall be known as the house of him whose sandal was pulled off. 
So, watch it. <laughs> now, by the time of the writing of Ruth, we're going to, at the end, chapter 4, we don't read that today and won't read it, but there's some sandal stuff done in this particular case. But the sandal, in that, this case, means the honoring of the pledge or the oath. But I expect sandals and all that, that was probably a pretty rough symbol, and you just didn't want to get go down that road. So the brother may have done, should have done his duty, I suspect, at least according to Deuteronomy. But here's the thing. This will all get fulfilled in the book of Ruth. The Leverate law will operate, but there are some other deeper things that are far more important here. One of them is that throughout the book of Ruth, there is a Hebrew concept that is continuously referred to called chesed, which means steadfast love. And so we see in the book of Ruth steadfast love expressed in its plural forms. God's steadfast love for his people. Ruth's steadfast love for his, her mother-in-law and, and, and her family. Boaz's steadfast love for Ruth. Naomi's steadfast love for Ruth and for her family. All of these things model the idea that you and I, as we seek to know God's purposes for us, seek to always be transparencies and reflections of God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness. So by virtue of that, there is modeled in this book the idea of God's steadfast abiding love, and in our response to the divine initiative begun in us, we too now reflect back to the world in relationship this steadfast love, which should and can influence our spiritual, emotional, and mental states. We believe that love is the most powerful force in the cosmos for transformation, change, new life, whatever Nuevo Huevo term you wish to attach to it. It's important. And we see this in the book of Ruth, shot through the book of Ruth, Chesed, God's steadfast love, our steadfast love, in response to that unconditional gift from God. Now, the thing is that we have something that appears to have occurred here, and that is that Ruth has a baby, and the baby's name is Obed. And Obed is the father of Jesse who is the father of King David. Well, well, the interesting thing here is that that means that King David, the king who was king during the Halcyon days of Israel, has a grandmother who was a foreigner, a Moabite. And so if we're talking about purity, if we're talking about consistency, this book says, you know what? King David had a grandmother who was a Moabite. Why would that make a difference? Well, after the exile, 
post-exilic. We have a situation where two books get written in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, they say, if you've come back from exile and you're coming into Jerusalem and you're doing all this and you have a wife who is a foreigner, you get rid of her. Well, the book of Ruth says, yeah, but King David's grandmother was a Moabite. If King David can have a foreigner who's a relative, it's okay for us to do that too. And maybe you and I need to reflect and think about how even in our own sacred literature, God's inclusive reach comes and says it's all right. And maybe we learn some things about this. And what does it tell us in the book of Ruth? That Ruth herself became observant, she was faithful, and she was pious. Think about all the fights we have in church life and in other parts of uh, our culture where we're always worried about some pristine purity with regard to how things operate. And we may, in fact, be going contrary to God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. And that in some way, erring on the side of inclusion is always the godly thing to do. Why will this be important for Christian men and women? Well, it will be important because in the genealogy, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is related to David. And Jesus is then related to somebody who was married to a foreigner. So in Jesus' teaching and preaching, he announces in his person and in his ministry that in him you will see now recapitulated all that has been said in our sacred literature about God's inclusive embrace. And that when we read Isaiah, when we read Jeremiah, when we read all of the minor prophets who tell us that God has been and always working a new thing to say, the people of the covenant are special, but they are not vested with special privileges. They, in fact, now are obliged to say we are part of God's plan for the cosmos to continue the announcement that all come in. All get to come in. So the book of Ruth is important. The book of Ruth has something to say to us uh, about that and about the practice of steadfast love in the midst of all of the anxiety and reactivity that this idea may cause. In the Gospel, we have the story, some of you remember using this language, the widow's mite, M-I-T-E. Is that the bug? No, it's the little, the mite, you know. Now, we missed last week in Mark's Gospel, if we'd read it in course, that Jesus had a relatively um, smooth conversation with the scribes. It wasn't too controversial. And things were said about the law, about the summary of the law, about all of this business. But the scribes get it in the neck this week. And Jesus speaks about the scribes who walk along, around in long robes and, you know, 
say long prayers, and here we are in long robes and in long prayer. I don't know. <laughs> you know? To be frank, maybe it's because I'm in long robes and say long prayers. I'm, I don't think this is the main issue here. <laughs> you know, I really don't. There's no evidence that Jesus was uh, engaged in a, a plan to get rid of all that stuff. What Jesus was concerned about was the relationship between the letter and the spirit. Jesus was concerned about the fact that uh, generosity was not authentic. Jesus was concerned about the fact that the scribes began to understand themselves uh, in, in elitist terms that would not be, uh, that were self-serving and not what their function originally involved. Enter the widow who comes, let me set the scene for you, in the temple in Jerusalem where Jesus was sitting and observing. You know, when you, you read these passages and you think about them, if you use them for meditation, one of the things you might ask, little things like, Jesus was sitting and observing. He was using his reflective powers. He was watching and looking. You understand Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that you lay over your own spiritual life and maturity. You need to practice being reflective and to look and to observe and to see and think about what it is that you're doing. You know? So he's watching, and where he was sitting, there are chests in the temple precincts. And they had labels on them that said, this is what, if you put money in here, this is where it goes to. If you put money here, this is where it goes to. So he was watching, and I, and I presume that he was watching some uh, big gifts being put into that treasury. And in comes a widow, a poor widow, who puts in two copper coins that were worth a penny. No fanfare, not a big gift. And yet he said, this widow uh, it, it gave in a more authentic fashion than all of the people who uh, expect a big fanfare and want a lot of notoriety and thank you for what it is that they're doing. Now, I have to tell you this too about this section of the gospel. No conversation was had, was there, about the prudence of the widow making this gift. I don't know whether it was a good idea for her to give all of her money away, a poor widow, you know? This is stewardship time, isn't it? So this can be understood as a stewardship passage. It's always in the lectionary for this time of the year. So preachers can talk about, you know, doesn't matter how big your gift is or little gifts count or, you know. At St. Luke's Church, we are grateful to everybody who gives at whatever level they give. There are no second-class people here with regard to the size of your gift. But maybe there's something else underneath this that doesn't have anything to do with big or small. And that is, this widow was all in. She was all in. No conditions. So maybe we have to think a little bit about our generosity 
in that regard, you know? I've spent a lot of time working in nonprofits and in uh, uh, organizations like uh, the convener of the board of directors for the Santa Maria Urban Ministry, uh, where we get people who want to volunteer there. And the first thing uh, that we have to work through is they're worrying about the people who receive the benefits of the ministry as being worthy of the gift. That they're not running a number on us. You know, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is you give it. That's what the widow understood. You give it. You need to give it. It's good for you spiritually to give it. It helps you become more mature and understand your relationship to things. It helps you understand something about God's unconditional love. It helps you understand our personal capacity for uh, self-deception. That in some way we are able to say, I'm all in here. I'm not thinking about, oh, as a checklist of conditions where that might not be so, but I'm in. And that was the widow. That's why she's in the gospel. Not because of her little dinky gift or whether she have, has exhausted her resources, which doesn't sound too smart to me. It's about her being all in. So I guess in stewardship time, you need to ask yourself that question, don't you? Are you all in? Or no? This week, I think we need to give thanks for God's inclusive reach and for the continuity of that inclusiveness which is sustained and reflected back to us through the biblical witness through the ages. Give thanks for the opportunity to be generous. Give thanks for the fact that uh, all of us are unfinished business with God. And so being all in may be a process, you know, of coming to understand the power of God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness. And when you do that, maybe you'll get a little of the spirit of the poor widow. Amen. Amen.